Well, seeking the Lord's blessing, we want to return to these verses that we've read from Numbers. Numbers 33, verse 50, then going on to the chapter 34. Last week, we looked at the bulk of chapter 33, and we noticed there the Lord's faithfulness and the Lord's forgetfulness in the sense that he does not take note of our sins when they are dealt with. He seems to pass over them, and we are encouraged to do likewise in our own lives. And we also noticed in these verses in the first part of chapter uh, 33, the Lord was even working in the places that weren't mentioned or nothing is recorded that happened in these places. And we notice that in the ordinary things of life, the Lord is still working in the lives of the believers, ultimately bringing them to uh, the heavenly promised land. Now, these verses that we've read tonight, I put it to you that are three basic things or three, three divisions in uh, these verses that we have just read. And the title I'd like to give to our meditation tonight is A People with a Purpose. A People with a Purpose. And we would just remind ourselves again that here we have the second generation of the people of Israel. They had come out of Egypt in the first generation because of their disobedience, died in the wilderness, and they wouldn't enter into the promised land. But their children, they were about to enter into the promised land. And if any people had a purpose, it was this people. Here they were on the very threshold of God beginning to fulfill his promise to his people to bring them in to the promised land. And there are three things or three divisions in these verses, from verses 50 to 56 of chapter 33. They were told they were to exterminate the inhabitants of the promised land. From verses 1 to 15 of chapter 34, the Lord, and it's important we notice here, it's the Lord who marks out the borders of the promised land. And the last division is found in verses 16 to 29 of chapter 34. The Lord appoints the princes to oversee the dividing up of the land by lots. Well, seeking the Lord's blessing as we gather around his word this evening, I would like to highlight some things from these three divisions. Well, the first division is then chapter 33 from verse 50 to the end. They were to exterminate the inhabitants of the promised land. They were to be eradicated. They were to be slaughtered. They were to be killed. They were not to be spared. That kind of language today is quite abhorrent to modern minds. And they would say that it is, surely this is overly cruel and harsh 
What kind of God do you serve? What kind of God do you believe in? A God that would tell his people to go into the land and eradicate the people who possess the land. Well, as you might well imagine, the people that would say that to you, and indeed they will say that to you in occasions, if they know anything about their Bibles at all, they will bring this up to you. But these same people who find this offensive, very many of them are quite happy to sanction the killing of the unborn in the womb. They have no problem with that. They look upon that as uh, health care or a woman's right. But they recoil from this and they find this somewhat repugnant. And we might say that these people think themselves to be more morally righteous than God himself. What does the believer say then to this? Well, the believer, to the believer, this reveals unto us that we serve an awesome God. And we serve a God who hates sin and who will ultimately deal with the sinner. We delight in a God who is gracious, who is merciful. And if we are Christian tonight, we have to acknowledge that we have tasted that the Lord is good. He has been gracious to you. He has been forgiving. He has been merciful. We could echo the words of uh, Jacob. We are not worthy of the least of his mercies. We acknowledge that. But God is a consuming fire. God is not a God who will continually overlook sin. These persons in this land here, the land of Canaan, had decades and decades and centuries to repent, but they did not. And God's love is eternal, but his patience is not infinite. And it was time for the Lord to move and to work and to carry out what he threatened he would do. And that is our response to it. God is a God of justice. God will deal with the sinner. We believe that he has dealt with sin in the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ dealt with sin. And if we can say this without being flippant in any way, in God's calendar, in God's program, the next thing to be dealt with is the sinner. These people have been given ample opportunity. They were not going to respond. God then was going to carry out what he threatened. And it reminds us the goodness of God is to lead us to repentance. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, I believe. And this is true for us all. 
The goodness of God is to lead us to repentance. Well, they were to destroy the inhabitants. More than that, they were to destroy any trace of their idolatry. Verse 52, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite platten down all their high places. He wanted the religion eradicated also. He didn't want any trace of it. Why? Well, he didn't want the people to look upon the images and their form of religion that it, that it might tempt them. God was zealous for them. God was going to give them the promised land. And in the promised land, it was to be the worship of Jehovah and the worship of Jehovah exclusively. It was not Jehovah and any other God. It was Jehovah and him alone. And the Lord knew how weak his people were. And if these images and pictures and molten images had remained, there was a temptation before them. And there would be a likelihood that the people of Israel who went into the promised land would just be like those that they dispossessed. And he did not want his people to be tempted. We might ask ourselves, and we should ask ourselves, is there anything for the believer here? Is there anything that this teaches us here this evening? Well, it teaches us two things. It teaches us two things. And the first is put to death. Now, I know people listen to sermons and they pick up and remember the things they want to remember. Some people can listen to a part of a sermon and they might hear a minister say something and they take it out of context completely. So let me be absolutely abundantly clear on this matter. When I say put to death, we're not to seek to put to death our, our enemies, our physical enemies. We're not talking about putting to death people at all. That's not what we're talking about. That's what they did. That was their commission. That's true. We're not going to deny that. But it's not our commission. But nevertheless, we are to put to death. What are we to put to death? We are to put to death our spiritual enemies. What are our spiritual enemies? Our spiritual enemies are our sins. That's what we are to put to death. This is what it's teaching us. If these people had remained, and if their religion had remained, it would be a great temptation for the people of Israel to succumb to temptation. And the Lord knew it. The people didn't know it, but the Lord knew it. And he knew how to deal with it. Eradicated so there would be no temptation. That's the way for the Christian. And that's always going to be the way for the Christian. We have to be absolutely ruthless with our spiritual enemies, which are our sins. The Lord Jesus Christ talks about this and teaches this in the Sermon on the Mount. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, 
For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, in case anyone does not understand, the Lord Jesus Christ is not talking about physically plucking our eyes out of our heads. That would be a breach of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. When he says, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. What he's saying is, if you see anything, if you're looking upon anything, and it leads you to sin, you are to stop looking at that thing. That's plucking your eye out. Deprive your eye of that thing that is drawing you and tempting you to sin. That's what he's talking about. He goes on, and if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. He's talking about anything that leads us into sin. We are to make sure that we don't follow that path. The internet's a wonderful thing. I, I believe most of us here, 99% of us will be active in the, in, in the internet and email. But it's so easy to see things that are inappropriate. It is so easy. It comes to you. You don't need to look for it. It comes to you. You have to be zealous. You have to be absolutely ruthless. That's what he's teaching. You have to kill it. Mortify it. Don't dally with it. Don't succumb to, to temptation. That is what is required. And we all have our spiritual enemies. The wicked heart, wicked imagination, gossiping, pride, envy, bitterness. These things that are not obvious. It's not like drunkenness. It's not like fornication. It's not like drug taking. These things are sins, of course, and if, if we're guilty of them, we must stop it. But we're talking about the things that are more subtle and more spiritual, like, as we've mentioned before, covetousness. Covetousness can be something that can have a, a cloak of goodness about it, a person can be hardworking, as he should be. He wants to provide for his family. He's, he's earnest. He's diligent. He's working away. But it could be nothing more than simply covetousness, wanting to amass more and more and more. And it's, it's under, if you like, it's covered in a sense of simply being a good, honest, hard-working individual. Our sins, therefore, we must put them to death. We're not to dally with them. We're not to excuse them. We're not to give them a moment because we'll fall to temptation. And this section here also teaches us not just simply to put our sins to death, but we are to be separate. We're to be a separate people. One of the brethren mentioned the word peculiar. That's what it means. 
to be distinct, to be separate, to be dedicated, to be set apart to the Lord. That's what's required of us. That's what was required of them when they went into the promised land and they were to kill off their enemies. They were not to embrace them. They were not to offer them an opportunity to, to surrender. No. They were dangerous. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Peter talking about separation. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. They were a peculiar people. They were the Lord's people. He had embraced them. And that's the same for the Christian in a greater sense. If we're Christians, friends, we have been chosen to be saved in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, you know, the people of Israel were not chosen in that sense. Oh, yes, some of them were saved. Yes, certainly they were, but not as a nation. You are a peculiar people. You are distinct. You are to be separate from this world. That doesn't mean to say we've got to be odd. It doesn't mean to say that we live in a, in a monastery or a nunnery. It doesn't mean to say that we go out of this world. We live in this world, and we, we live our Christian life in this world. But we're not of the world. Be not conformed to this world. They weren't to be conformed to the practices of the people that they were to dispossess. No. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can our minds be transformed? We are to fill our minds with the word of God. We are to familiarize ourselves with God's will. Where is God's will? God's will is in the word of God. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Finally, in this section, Paul says to the Ephesians, they were Gentiles. What a transformation that came upon their life. They weren't Jews. They didn't have a church background, we might say. They would have been very ignorant in many respects. But the Apostle Paul tells them, these new Christians in Ephesus, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. That's what it's to be like for the Christian. Here we are in Glasgow. Yes, we've enjoyed many spiritual blessings as a nation, but what about today? We are full of idols and idolatry. We are like a pagan nation. Christian, you are to be different. Walk not as other Glaswegians, we might say. No, in the vanity of their mind. Well, 
Moving on, the second section we have from chapter 34, verses 1 to 15. The Lord marks out the borders of the promised land. Matthew Henry says that the the length of this land would would be around 160 miles in length uh, by 50 miles in breadth. And I'm taking his word for it, but he says that's approximately half as much ground as England. So it really wasn't that big a piece. And when you consider the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the whole earth belongs to the Lord. Yet, if you like, that was his vineyard. That was his special place. That was the promised land for his people. It was a relatively small part of the earth. And he goes on to apply this to Christians. And he's telling Christians to be satisfied with what God has given to you. Now, that doesn't mean to say that we're not to be earnest and diligent and to seek to improve ourselves. No, it doesn't mean that at all. But at the end of the day, whatever God has given to us, we are to be satisfied. He doesn't give us the whole world. Why? Because it would certainly ruin us if we did. He knows what we need. And therefore, it's a plea here to be contented with the Lord's provision. Is he not sovereign? Is he not the God of providence? Does he not know the hairs on your head? Is he not able to count them? Does he not know you intimately, know what you need, know your problems, know your difficulties, know the future? You don't. He does. Therefore, it's a plea to be content. And he marks out the borders. Is there a lesson there? Well, we think there's a lesson there for the people of Israel. Anyway, Egypt was part of the border. Sodom and Gomorrah was another part of the border. And surely then the fact that Egypt was a part of the border, it was to remind the people when they saw this, this is where they came from. It was to remind them that the Lord had undertaken a glorious deliverance, a glorious salvation. He had brought a motley crew out of Egypt. He had brought down a world power by bringing his people out, and they were delivered. And ultimately, they were going to be brought into the promised land. The Lord had done it, and they would see the border, and it would remind them, this is where we came from. And it would remind them of their bondage and of their hard labor and the terrible life that they had. And now they would be settled in their promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And if they were right, it would fill their hearts with joy as they remember the goodness of their God. And this should be the same for you, Christian. You have been redeemed. You have been taken out of the clutches of the evil one. Once upon a time, you were on that broad road that led to destruction. 
The devil was your master and you followed him. But the Lord intervened and he put his hand upon you and took you out. Set his seal upon you. Did wonderful things, glorious things. He exercised his sovereign will. You experienced saving grace. Your heart was opened. You received the word of life. You looked up and you saw the Lord Jesus. Others despise him, but you love him. You go to the cross. You see him bleeding and dying there. You see the crown of thorns upon him. And he's beautiful because he has saved you. When they saw the border, they remembered their past. Now it's good to remember our past. It shouldn't fetter us. It shouldn't drag us down. It should cause us to be delighted. What a glorious future we have because we have been redeemed from our empty way of life. Sodom and Gomorrah was another border for them. What would that remind them of? It would remind them of the judgment of God and how God visited that place, a fertile place, a fertile plain. And fire and sulfur came down from heaven and destroyed it, ruined it. God's judgment upon a wicked people, surely this was to warn them. And as we see the judgments of God, they are to warn us. They're there for our warning. God will not tolerate sin. Ultimately, he will move. Ultimately, he will visit sin. What else can we learn from this section? Well, God had set out the borders and he was going to put them where he wanted them as tribes. It reminds us really that God is indeed sovereign over where he puts us. We are here tonight. We are where we live because of the will of God. God has put us where we are. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there may come a time when we will change, we will move. And if that is the case, it is because God will move us. God is the one who sets people where they are. God is the one who brought you into this world without your knowledge whatsoever. God is the one who will take you out of this world at a day that he has set. And you cannot change that day. You cannot alter it in any sense. It has been determined. This is what Paul said when he was preaching to the Athenians. Athens was a place full of idols and idolatry. And he was seeking to preach to them. And he was speaking about creation. And he goes on in verse 26 of Acts chapter 17. 
and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. He's reminding the Athenians that we've all come from one man, half made of one blood, all nations of men. We've all come from Adam. He was the only one created from the dust. His wife Eve came from Adam. And the whole of mankind has come from this pair. And the bounds of their habitation. We know in Genesis chapter 11, the nations were separated, they were divided. Who did this? It was God. The bounds of their habitation. And there in the promised land, they were going to go in and God was going to give them the land. And they would be set where God would have them to be. And this is a comfort to the Christian. This is something that we acknowledge, we delight in, we admire his sovereignty. We are happy to submit to it. We are here where we are because of the Lord our God. There is something else we can maybe draw from this section. They were only to dispossess those within their borders. There were other people outside of their borders. They weren't to interfere there. It was none of their business. They were to mind their own business. The promised land was their business. They were to exterminate the people there, but the people out with the borders, they were to live with. They were to get along with in a certain sense. They were not to intermingle with them. It was not their business. I'm reminded of the time when the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 12 was preaching about some very important and vital things like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And someone in the crowd, as he was speaking, said to him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. How inappropriate. Here was the Lord Jesus Christ talking about very important things. And all this man was interested in was his money, his inheritance. Did Jesus get involved? Did he take up his comment? No. Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? I'm not here to talk about temporal matters. There are people in the community who can deal with this. This is not my remit. He came to seek and to save that which was lost, not to get involved in family feuds about property and about inheritance. He was a man who was fixed and focused upon what he was about. And so were the people here. Don't interfere. 
Do what is required of you. First Peter chapter 4, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Christian, you're to live a life to glorify God. You're to glorify God in your calling. If you're a husband, you're to be a model husband. If you're a wife, you're to be a model wife. If you're an employer, you're to be a model employer. If you're to be a, a Christian father, a Christian parent, then you are to be the best Christian parent. And so on. You can apply this to yourselves. And before we pass on to the next uh, heading, we're not to... We're not to get involved in God's business. What do I mean? Well, one Ulsterman said to someone who was discussing or concerned about the doctrine of election, and it's something that is brought up on occasions. Ministers get a question about election, and usually the person says, oh, it's not fair. What did this Alsterman say? And I'm paraphrasing when she started talking about election. Election is God's business. Repentance is your business. Mind your own business. How true it is. We're to make our calling and election sure. That's what we're to do. We're to leave the sovereignty of God to God alone. We have a responsibility. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Every one of us, without exception. And we leave the doctrine of election with God. Thirdly, we have here from verses 16 to 29, the Lord appoints the princes to oversee the dividing up of the land by lots. This whole verses, this whole section that we read is quite triumphant in many ways because they weren't in the promised land, but it is as if they were. As far as the Lord was concerned, they were there. They hadn't fought a battle yet in the promised land, but here they were. They were at the point of dividing it up amongst themselves. God was confident that he was going to bring them in. And therefore, as far as the Lord was concerned, they were actually there. And he appointed people to oversee the dividing of the land. It was going to be Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, along with the princes, one prince from each tribe. And this again would remind us, friends, that God is a God of order. Everything was going to be done orderly, decently, and with transparency. Nothing was hidden. Everything was going to be done in a God-honoring and a God-glorifying manner. 
The tragedy is, friends, that they got into the promised land. They did possess it, but they didn't take all that rightfully belonged to them. They never grasped, fully grasped the promise. They didn't. And even in the heydays of David and of Solomon, yes, they extended it, but they never reached the limits of what God had for the people. They never. They didn't eradicate those that were in the promised land. On some occasions, they got the people in the land to work for them. They thought that would be a good thing. They could do the hard labor. We'll not eradicate them. They can do our dirty work. And of course, you know what happened. Ultimately, they were thrown out of the promised land. Verse 56 of chapter 33. Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. And that's what happened. First, Israel was taken captivity. Then Judah was taken captivity. They were taken out to the promised land because of their idolatry, because of their disobedience. This, friends, reminds us that left to ourselves, we could never save ourselves. But we have one who has done everything. He has secured for us our heavenly promised land. The Lord Jesus Christ, who fought for us, who died for us, who paid the price for our sins, who served the Lord his God wholeheartedly, and fought against his enemies and our enemies, and will ultimately bring all of his people to the heavenly promised land. If it was left to ourselves, we would just be like the Israelites. We would compromise. We wouldn't eradicate all our, all our enemies. That's why we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a people with a purpose because the Lord Jesus Christ has done something glorious and wonderful for his people. Amen. And may the Lord be pleased to bless his word to us. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank thee again for our time around thy word. And we thank thee that it reminds us of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stir us up, O God, that in the day that we find ourselves, we might serve thee with greater zeal, greater devotion, and greater love towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear our prayers, continue with us and pardon our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen.